This episode of Commons is brought to you by the Canadian mattress company ND. ND is a sleep brand that wants to offer you the best possible sleep at the fairest possible price. They'll ship the mattress to you in a box. You'll get a 100-night free trial to see if you like it. So try it out. Visit ndy.ca, that's nd.ca, and use the promo COMMONS to get $50 off your first mattress. This episode is also brought to you by Sonos. The Sonos One has Amazon's Alexa built right into the speaker. You can control your music, you can check the news, you can find out what the weather is, you can find out what the traffic report's going to be on your drive into work. You can manage smart devices all with your voice. And Sonos is offering the listeners of Commons 10% off of one order of $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. This offer is only available for a limited time and cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions, so act quickly. Use the promo code COMMONS10, that's capital C-O-M-M-O-N-S-1-0, at Sonos.com to receive this offer. Canada has 20% of the world's freshwater supply, and 7% of that is renewable. And yet, First Nations do not have access to clean drinking water. It's frustrating that we can't, you know, just use our water like everybody else does. And, and like in Winnipeg, they can, you know, use their water directly from the tap, and we can't do that. That was Samantha Redsky of Show Lake 40 First Nation. Her community hasn't been able to use their tap water for two decades. Two decades. Clean water has to come from off the reserve in the form of bottled water, and oftentimes it is not sufficient to meet the daily needs of her family. I spoke to her about her experiences, her advocacy, and how her community has taken matters into their own hands. Justin Trudeau's government has promised to get rid of all long-term water advisories by the year 2021. And in February, the David Suzuki Foundation released its second report on the government's progress on this issue. To put it mildly, the report says that the government is falling behind on its mandate. Ryan asked Rachel Arsenault about why this is the case. I'm Ryan McMahon. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. From Canada Land, this is Commons. This episode of Commons is brought to you by the Canadian mattress company, ND. So Ryan, I'm still on that ND mattress. It's still going strong. I finally got myself on an ND mattress and I have to tell you, I get it. I finally get it. It's a pretty sweet mattress. It is a pretty sweet mattress. It's a Canadian sleep brand that wants to offer our listeners the best possible sleep at the fairest possible price. They ship the mattress to you for free and give you a 100-night free trial to see if you like it. But if you wanted to send it back, they donate it to a charity and someone else will be able to enjoy it. We have a deal for Commons listeners, right, Hadia? Visit nd.ca, and that's E-N-D-Y, and use the promo code COMMONS and get 50 bucks off your first mattress. So, Ryan, how do we even start talking about this issue? I mean... How do we grapple with the fact that we have entire swaths of our population who are not in some remote, you know, place that we can't access, who are who are near us, who do not have 
the same access to water that other people enjoy. Like one thing I always found very interesting is the whole Nestle situation where they basically are just bottling what comes out of your tap and selling it back to you. Yeah, I mean, I remember this would have been in the late 80s, early 90s. I remember going to the gas bar on my reserve with my grandma and I had just finished hockey practice and I went in to buy a drink. And this was like, you know, because we were pretty poor and so this was like a big deal. And I remember running in, grabbing myself a drink and what I bought myself was a bottle of, of water. And um, I think that was the first time my grandmother had ever seen bottled water. And she made me bring it back. She wouldn't let me open it. She said, you're not buying water. What the hell is wrong with you? Something that's come up a lot in these discussions is uh, the meaning of water. And I was hoping, Ryan, that you could explain its significance of water from an Indigenous perspective uh, to someone like me who doesn't know much about it. Well, it's... You know, it's it's kind of inherent to, you know, indigenous worldview. Generally speaking, we look at the our sort of our first relationship with water, um, you know, coming to be uh, when we are conceived. We are raised inside of water. And um, and uh, we consider water to be sacred for, for many reasons, but that fundamental relationship with water begins, you know, at that time. And there are many teachings around why uh, women are protectors of water and speak and pray for the water because they are the ones that carry that sacred water that gives life. And so our connection to water is one that is, you know, foundational and is premised off of our understanding of what it means to be um, alive. But I mean, even if you don't have that indigenous perspective, one would think that protecting the water would be pretty important. Like we are dependent on water. You know, water is 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 a hu- very human conversation. And what we have to remember is that I don't know more started when Bill C-45 was, tr- was attempted to be passed as an omnibus bill by Stephen Harper and the conservatives. There was thousands of lakes, rivers, and streams that had the protections lifted off of them basically to open up the land for industry. And the response by indigenous people, uh, namely indigenous women, uh, was to say, hell no, you can't do that. You can't strip the protections off of our drinking water sources. So maybe, D, here's what I'll say about this episode. Maybe this episode is less about us, you know, talking about the issue or or this, you know, so-called crisis that maybe I think for this episode, we just got to step back and just take a listen. And we need to make space to listen to some of the women that have dedicated their lives to this issue. And first, we're going to hear from Rachel Arsenault. Um, You know, she's an Anishinaabe woman and a a master's student at Laurentian University. Um, But but she also, you know, really understands her, her relationship to water and that her connection as an Anishinaabe woman uh, is inherent to her existence, to her life. My name is Rachel Arsenault, and I'm a fish clan from Wakomakong Unceded First Nation on Manitoulin Island. So I uh, first heard of the First Nation water crisis in 2014 when I heard uh, two youth speak about the lack of potable drinking water in their communities. And I decided I wanted to learn more about what was happening and learn how to help in any way I could. And uh, in 2016, I was accepted into the Masters of Indigenous Relations program at Laurentian University in Sudbury. And uh, while I was working on my master's, I was hired by the Decolonizing Water Partnership Project, which is a national international partnership project 
working towards changing perspectives on water as a commodity and, it, and towards uh, Indigenous water governance. What does water mean to you as, as an Anishinaabe woman, but also now as a researcher and academic? Well, I can tell you that uh, part of me that feels really good when I'm around water is, is taking part in ceremonies and just giving thanks that you know that there are some parts of Canada that still have clean drinking water. And as, a, as women, we're keepers of water. And I've heard that, but I also firmly believe it. You picked up on something that I think is really interesting. There was a turning point for you where you heard young people talking about the water crisis in their community. Yeah, so I used to work with the Ontario First Nations Young People's Council. And uh, when I was working with them, um, that was when I really first uh, started hearing more about the water issues that are going on in communities. And I know the youth are particularly concerned because they're looking out for future generations. And that's uh, in line with uh, principles that First Nations peoples have. You're working on a project uh, called Decolonizing Water, Building Resilient Water Futures. When I say the words decolonizing water, what does that mean to you? For me, and for all the work that I've done in the project so far, it's all about changing the perspectives of water. It's the shift from, you know, treating water as a commodity and, you know, just seeing water only as a resource and thinking about, you know, all the other things that we should be thinking about in terms of water. So let's let's look at your let's talk about your research. What what have you looked at specifically in your research regarding water governance and and um, and the water crisis here in Canada? For my thesis work right now, uh, I'm at the stage where I've completed most of my literature review. So in uh, 2016, I obtained a copy of the Drinking Water on First Nations Reserves map, uh, which was shared with me by the Ministry of Aboriginal Affairs, which is now called MIR. Um, and this map showed 40 First Nations communities that were impacted by boil water advisories in Ontario from less than a year to 10 years or more. And there was 40 on there. And I was not only shocked, but, you know, by the fact that there were so many, but I was also shocked that there was First Nations communities in 2016 that had do not consume advisories. That that number is shocking. But also, we're not talking about remote flying communities. We're also talking about communities you can easily access by road and highway, right? Yeah. And, and another piece to that too, which I realized uh, later with this map, is that it listed 40 communities on there that were priorities set out by MMA or MAA. So those communities were on their radar. They have this map showing where they are in Ontario. But one thing I noticed is that not all the First Nations communities on, with boil water advisories are on that map. So, for example, um, you know, the year before, Serpent River, you know, was in and out of the media for um, boil water advisories, and they weren't even listed. What is the jurisdictional back and forth that happens around these crises? Is it a, a federal jurisdiction? Is it provincial? Is it municipal in some cases? From what I've seen, it basically came down to who paid to have the infrastructure built, who contributed to that, and it suddenly became their jurisdiction. I visited territories where, you know, you can't swim in the river because the, the river is polluted. You can't swim in the lake because the lake, you know, has the effects of mining or, or tailings ponds or, or other en environmental disasters. That, that fractures the relationship of Indigenous peoples to the water. What do you think happens to, to Indigenous peoples when they can't have relationship with water? Well, one thing that I've actually read about recently, and I still have some more learning to do on the subject, but there was uh, something that I came across that was called 
ecological grief, one of the things that I've I've read about the most that, you know, I found really disturbing is that it's the vulnerable populations, you know, that are the most at risk. And not only that, but uh, another thing that I've read is communities that go through like 40 plus years of boil water advisories. Eventually they give up. They don't want to boil their water anymore. It's so much work day after day of not having clean, clean drinking water. They just take their chances. And that's that's scary to think about. The um, David Suzuki Foundation released a report uh, in February of this year saying that the government is falling behind on its commitments to end these long-term water advisor, uh, advisories. And the target originally was 2021. But um, in the report, it details, you know, that that uh, the government will fall, fall well short of this. Why do you think Canada's efforts um, under this liberal government uh, are still failing? And, and how much more work is there left for governments to do to, to combat the water crisis uh, across Canada? Well, personally, uh, like you said, um, they just made these commitments recently or relatively recently. And I, I think that you still have a bit of a, a period to see if the, the funding commitments they made, if that's actually going to be adequate and, you know, if to see if the work that they're doing on the ground is actually going to make any kind of impact, I, I think it might still be too soon because the efforts, like you said, are there. However, my concern is, is what happens when government changes? And you always have to, you always just have to assume that it's never going to be enough money, that the resources will never match the need. Yeah, well, I don't, <laughs> I wouldn't like to assume anything like that, but it's just something to think about for sure. When we think about the changing of government and the potential of falling short of this this goal through 2021, that, that's a scary thought. How do we position ourselves in this conversation to protect ourselves against the changing of, of government by talking about water and Indigenous law being asserted in terms of correcting the water crisis? Can Indigenous law put that conversation to the forefront? I think that's... Uh something we should probably be considering right now <laughs> and not wait until October. Um, I think the sooner we get on that, the better. We should start trying to make sure that this is on their, their radar going forward and that those commitments remain as part of, our, part of our number one priorities, as a collective at least. The David Suzuki Foundation report also indicated that the government isn't doing enough to... Uh, consult with and to work with Indigenous communities in that regard. What is a best case scenario that could happen should Indigenous peoples be brought to the table to help combat the water crisis in their own communities uh, and beyond? If you bring people in and you're having a discussion, and, and like you said, sometimes our worldviews are not included in, in the feedback that is presented back to us after after we go out and speak to government or communities, I should say. And, um, you know, at least include it somewhere in the document that something was said. It shouldn't be one person's decision to exclude something that they feel is not relevant to the discussion. And as I was trying to explain throughout our conversation here is that we don't really know what's irrelevant unless you talk to people and actually record what they say and, and make sure that there's some record of that. As Indigenous people, how do we stay focused on the future and and and? and actively creating better futures for each other uh, through the work that you do? Because it's it's easy to lose hope, but how does your work and the work of others in this space 
allow for indigenous youth to be to be active uh, in in creating positive futures for indigenous peoples. One of the strongest inspirations for me to actually get into this line of work was, you know, just listening to the youth. The youth really inspired me. They're so courageous and strong and always willing to to speak up for for what they're concerned about. And it's it's really great to see. And it's it's also kind of sad that the kind of legacy that some of this is, is what they're left with and what they have to deal with and learn how to fix and to live with. And uh, well, that's that's a big inspiration for, for my line of work, for sure. Thank you. Thank you for all of your work. And thank you to everyone at Decolonizing Water uh, for the work that you're doing. Thank you for uh, inviting me to be here. This episode of Commons is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Guys, you have to check this out. You are going to love this platform. My love of learning didn't stop uh, when I finished school and uh, I found The Great Courses Plus and I am hooked. There are thousands of lectures to stream in almost any category you can imagine. You can watch or listen anytime from anywhere. We recommend for listeners of this podcast that you check out a course that we've been enjoying from The Great Courses Plus. It's the Modern Political Tradition series. This has been an incredible, well-rounded conversation about the modern political tradition, and and it's really helped me uh, prepare for this show. We want you to enjoy the thrill of learning from The Great Courses Plus, too. So we've arranged a special limited-time offer for our listeners. You get a full month for free of unlimited access to enjoy any one of these lecture series. But to start your free month, you have to go to our special URL. So go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash commons. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash commons. I think you're going to love this. I am Samantha Redskine. I am from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation. Shoal Lake 40 First Nation is located on a man-made island right off the Trans-Canada Highway, an hour's drive from Winnipeg. But the community is completely cut off from the mainland. The community's been under a boil water advisory for two decades, and being cut off from the mainland means that they have to cross an ice road in the winter or take a boat in the summer to get their bottled water. So Samantha shares what it's been like living with a boil water advisory for the last 20 years. Samantha, tell me about Shoal Lake 40. Tell me about your community. As far like back as I can remember, it's always been um, a struggle to live in our community. We used to have to haul our water from uh, from the lake and to our homes. Our water issue started back in 1997, where we were issued a boiled water uh, advisory. And so our water wasn't safe for drinking anymore. Where does the water come from that the community has access to? Well, each um, house has running water and it comes directly from the lake that is um, mostly untreated. A lot of people listening to this podcast won't have lived or don't have experience with the precarity of, 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 a, of a human right, like, like water. And we kind of want to get into, you know, what a daily routine looks like in terms of your life having to sort of revolve around accessing clean water. So, so what is, what does your day look like if you need to get uh, water for yourself or if there's a, the problem with, with the water that you, that you actually have? The, the water that comes through the pipes, you mean? 
Yeah, like do you you have to boil that in order to use it for cooking? No, we don't. We don't use that at all for cooking. We try not to. Uh, it's uh, we use the bottled water for cooking. If we need make a cup, uh, like a pot of coffee, we'll need to use the bottled water. And if we cook, we use the bottled water. Well, for the most part, everything you do regarding cooking or drinking, you know, making juice or something for the house that you're going to ingest, you need to use that bottled water. You can't use the water from the tap. I know some people have used, uh, they've tried to use the water from the tap and they've uh, resulted in uh, uh, stomach issues and uh, skin issues that they need to get treated by a doctor. Is that the water that that the kids would use uh, or your mom or, or yourself would use to, to shower and to bathe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's causing uh, uh, open sores in some some people, like I guess people that are vulnerable, such as uh, the children and our, our elders. Right. And so the, the, the precarity of water like that, that basically determines your daily routine. You can't run out of water, especially if it's around the holiday and the the guy that delivers water is maybe away for a few days and you can't access the water, then, you know, you, you're going to have a... Sometimes, you you know, people come up with ways to try to get around that. They'll, you know, call a neighbor and ask, you know, can I borrow a jug of water and, until uh, someone, you know, the delivery guy gets back. So, because we only have one delivery guy, and it's not—he's uh, not always accessible. What is the water delivery system uh, all about in Shoal Lake? Mostly, the water is distributed from uh, one person that uh, goes around weekly and gives you like a couple bottles of water. And um, I mean, those jugs are—I don't know—they're kind of heavy. They're given to each house, and depending on how many members in your house. If you go through that two jugs of water that you're allowed, you'd have to call the band office to get uh, extra water, and then they contact the delivery guy who will uh, give you water whenever he's available. And so there's a there's a bottled water storage facility on the on the reserve is that true where you store all of the the empty bottles in and and swap out the, the the water for people yeah it's actually we don't have a storage area um but they have to you know kind of store uh the water um because of uh you know because we have we're not accessible by by uh road right so we have to store the water during the, the delivery guy has to get uh, extra water delivered in during uh, the springtime because of the ice. We use an ice road to connect ourselves to the mainland. And um, during breakup, like spring right now, the, the guy has to uh, uh, get extra water and store it in one of our uh, our community buildings, which is a gym. It's supposed to be a gym, but now people can't access that because they have all these water jugs. It does does each house get a set amount of water delivered based on, on how many people are in the house or, or how does the distribution work? 
Yes, uh, they do. Since we have like uh, numerous families living in each house, they do uh, try to, I guess, base it on how many people live in that house. Um, and then if you need more, that you find yourself running out, and then you just need to uh, let the delivery guy know that you need a little bit extra. So what a lot of people don't know is that uh, Shoal Lake 40 is actually a man-made island. Right, and it's disconnected from the mainland, and and because you're cut off, you know that means the community doesn't have an easy way to bring water onto the reserve, and and in order to get a water treatment plant, you need to be connected to the mainland. You need a road to be built, and um, that road is called Freedom Road. Before the government approved the road or agreed to pay for the road, there was all of this political uh, back and forth that was happening, but the whole while. Shoal Lake 40 was determined they were going to build the road with their support or without. Can you just talk about that a little bit for our listeners so people know that this was a self-determined project that was going to happen with or without that support? You know, at the beginning, I can remember that we had a meeting because it was some of the, the issues that were at hand was that we were going to be, I guess, blockaded from using the, the the only road that we had means of access to. So we decided as a community, we need to get this road done. And the option of a bridge, which we had seen talked about years before, was not an option. It was not going to happen. So we decided as a community, we're going to build this road. And, you know, we don't know how or where we're going to start, but we're going to build this road. You were part of a delegation of Indigenous women who went to Geneva to speak to the UN about this issue in 2016. Uh, Why was it important that it was an all-woman delegation that went to the UN? I believe it was important that they sent uh, women because uh, as Anishinaabe people, uh, we carry the role as water protectors. And I think a lot of our listeners need need that context around the 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 teaching of of Anishinaabe Kwe and 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 the water. Are you able to to share a, a little bit about what water means to you as as an Anishinaabe Kwe and and what that teaching uh, tell, tells you about uh, about your role in protecting water and speaking up for the water? Um, well, as an Anishinaabe woman, you know, we were taught as women that we carry the role as water protectors and that water is a living thing, um, a spiritual entity with life-giving forces, I guess. And, um, you know, it comes with certain duties as a protector of water. Um, We need to ensure that it's respected, protected, and nurtured. That's what uh, water means to me. And with, with your advocacy um, and and the work that you do to speak up for the water, what, what impact has this had on you, uh, both either positive or or negative? Has it been tiring to be this this constant advocate that that needs to do this work on behalf of yourself, your family, and your community? Well, I don't think it's uh, not tiring. We've got to think about our our grandchildren that we have, our great grandchildren that we're going to have. We have to do this for them, right? And that's one of the the driving forces for me as a, as a Anishinaabe woman. Although sometimes it is frustrating when people don't hear 
what you're trying to teach them. Justin Trudeau visited your community. When you measure the anticipation of the visit versus the disappointment of where things are at now, can you talk about the promises that politicians make and how it feels to be a a, a member of the community at Shoal Lake 40 to have these promises made over and over again, only to seemingly uh, not be followed up on in, in a way that is meaningful and impactful for the community. He came to our community and, um, you know, he had this uh, plan that he was going to, you know, get all these First Nations off uh, the boiled water advisories. And a year, maybe two later, we're, we're still here. We're still having boiled water issues. <laughs> if you could talk to Canadians to help them learn or to bring awareness around your reality at Show Lake 40, what would you want to share with them? What would you want to tell them? I guess it's the importance of being connected to, uh, you know, be able to get home safely and and to be able to have this uh, uh, water issue taken care of. I mean, you know, we're in 2018 and we're one of the the list of uh, Aboriginal communities that do not have access to clean drinking water, clean, safe drinking water. And, you know, we, some of our, our our kids, our elders are suffering in this day and age. So um, that's all I would want people to know is that we are here. We're still here. We want, we want this. We want the safe water for our people. That's our Commons episode for this week. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. And I'm Ryan McMahon. Thanks for tuning in. If you have feedback for us or have a pitch or just want to say hi, send us an email at latifa, that's L-A-T-I-F-A, at canalandshow.com. This episode was produced by Latifa Abdin with help from Ellen Payne-Smith. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Our music is produced by Nathan Burley. If you want to get at us, find us online. You know how to do it. And if you like what we do, please support us. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.